So we will be looking at Romans 7, the first six verses. Now, the whole chapter really is kind of telling a story. But we're going to look at it in three, I'm thinking, at least three chunks. And this is going to be the first chunk this morning, the first six verses. And, and these first six verses are sort of like a hinge, if you will, or sort of like a, I don't know how else to explain it. It's a hinge that connects what's ever in chapter six with the remainder of chapter seven, because it has topics and talks about things that are uh, in common with both. Some look at Romans 7 verses 1 through 6 as sort of like the tail end of Paul's argument in Romans 6. And some look at it as the beginning of what he's talking about in in the rest of Romans 7. And I think both are kind of true. So it's kind of an, an overlapping section. But I will read the first seven verses. So Paul writes, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has dominion or jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So again, a brief recap on what we looked at last week, Romans 6. We finished Romans 6 last week by looking at verses 20 to 23. And in that passage, we saw Paul give the basis or the ground for the command that he gives in Romans 6, 19, where in verse 19, He basically commands them for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now here's the command, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That's the command. And then he goes on in verse 20 for when dot, 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 so on and so forth. So that for kind of indicates that what he is about to say is sort of a a reasoning or foundation or the grounding for that command. And the basic argument that Paul gives is this, that when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. And we talked about this last week. We looked at the myth of autonomy and we looked at how sinful man believes that he is free. But really, the unbeliever is a slave. He is a slave to his own sin. And the only thing the unbeliever is free in regard to is actual righteousness. That's what Paul says. You are free in regards to righteousness. In other words, the unbeliever cannot does not, will not do acts of righteousness that are pleasing to God because he is unable to. He is a slave. He is under the dominion, under the bondage of sin. And then he goes on to say, now that you are freed from sin, you ought to now consider yourselves as slaves of righteousness to God. And again, there's only two options for a person. You are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. 
You're, it's not once you're freed from your slavery to sin, you become a free agent, a maverick, a sort of a, uh, you know, a lone ranger kind of guy. No, you're not. There's no autonomous people. You are either under the slavery of sin or you're under the slavery of righteousness to God. And then in Romans 6.23, at the end of that chapter, this is sort of a summary verse for the entire chapter of Romans 6. Whereas being a slave of sin, then what you earn, what you get for your slavery to sin, the wages you earn, as Paul will say, is death. The wages of sin is death. But then now that you're freed from sin, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, you receive the free gift of eternal life, which is salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we get to Romans 7 now, as we start this new chapter, we're going to be looking at some depth into the nature of the law of God. So this chapter really kind of goes a little bit into depth about the law of God, in particular, the Mosaic law. Okay, not just the Ten Commandments, but the entirety of the Mosaic law and not law in general either. But before we do this, I think it might be useful to speak briefly about what Reformed theology calls the three uses of the law. How many people have heard of this notion of the three uses of the law? Okay, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an idea that Luther, Luther picked up on and, and, and popularized, but it's been brought into Reformed confessions as well. So the three uses of the law are to curb, to mirror, and to guide, okay? To curb, to mirror, and to guide. So the first use of the law, to curb, the law of God curbs the sinfulness of man by restraining evil. The law of God curbs the, the, the sinfulness of man by restraining evil. Now, these references I'm pulling out are from the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 95, 96, and 97, talk about this. So, Question 96 of the larger catechism says the moral law is of use to the unregenerate man. So that's the unbeliever. The law of God is of use to the unbeliever um, by uh, to awaken their consciences, to flee from the wrath to come, to drive them to Christ or upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. So the law of God has a use to the unbeliever, and that is to in a sense, awaken their conscience, to alert them to the fact that what they're doing is sin, to drive them to Christ for their salvation. And if they continue in that state of sin and misery, then it leaves them inexcusable before the wrath of God. That is the way to the law of God curbs. Now, the law of God is also a mirror. The law of God is a mirror in that it reflects and reveals to all men the will of God and the nature of sin. Again, from larger catechism, question 95. The moral law is of use to all men, so both believers and unbelievers, to inform them of the holy nature and will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery and thereby help them as a... Uh, to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of his perfect and the perfection of his obedience. So here again, the law is a mirror. It reflects the will of God. It reflects the nature of sin. And it makes that knowledge available to all men, both believers and unbelievers. 
So the law of God curbs, the law of God is a mirror, and the law of God is a guide. That's the third use of the law. The law of God guides believers in how to live lives of thankful obedience to God for all he has done for them in Christ. And this is the the use of the law that we know most in the church. This is the one that we talk about mostly in the church. And it's in our Heidelberg Catechism that it's it's a rule of faith and practice. It is a rule that guides us in our living of thankful obedience to God. And again, in the larger catechism, this time question 97, the answer is, although they that are regenerate, that is believers, and believe in Christ, be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so we're no longer under the law as a covenant of works. Okay, we're under the covenant of grace. The covenant of works has been fulfilled in Christ. So we're no longer under, or we've been delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. It is of special use to show believers how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule for their obedience. So this law of God, this third use of the law is as a guide that guides the Christian and how to live their life how to show thankful obedience to Christ. So you've got the curb, it, it, it restrains evil. The mirror, it reflects the will of God. And the guide, it shows believers how to live their lives. Those are the three uses of the law. Now, more than this, though, is the relationship of the law with the old and the new covenants. Okay, the old and the new covenants with the relationship between those and the law. Now, first, we need to understand that the old and the new covenants are both workings of the covenant of grace. Okay, so the covenant of grace has different what some confessional statements call different administrations, different dispensations. Though I I hesitate to use that word because it might get confused with dispensationalism. But the idea is that the covenant of grace is, is has at least two major administrations. There's the administration under the time of Moses with the old covenant, and then the administration under Christ with the new covenant. Okay, but the old covenant, the Mosaic law, everything contained in the Mosaic law is under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. Okay, some people confuse that because some people think that the Mosaic law, in a sense, is a reworking of the covenant of works, but it is not. The covenant of the Mosaic law is under the covenant of grace. Now, in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the law given to Sinai, everything involved in that, you have the introduction of what they call the ceremonial aspects of the law. Okay, the sacrifices, the festivals, the tabernacle, the temple, all of the Old Testament worship is contained in the ceremonial law. And the Jews were bound to this law. Okay, this is going to be important as we work through chapter 7 here. Because in chapter 7, Paul is going to say that you are no longer bound to the law. You've been freed from the law. And this idea of being bound to the law is being bound to the Mosaic law. So the Jews, as a nation, as a people of God, were bound to this law. They were under the control of this law to perform the sacrifices, to attend the festivals, to revere the temple, Not as a means to attain righteousness. We should never confuse this binding of the law and this obedience as a way to become righteous. 
But it was as a, uh, as a, it was because the law during the old covenant was a tutor. So it's not to attain righteousness, but it's through these practices, through these sacrifices, all of which pointed to the fulfillment in Christ. Right? Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. That's what he says. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in Matthew chapter 5. But this law, the Mosaic law, sort of they, the Jews were bound to this. In fact, the, Paul calls the law in Galatians, he calls it a tutor, a tutor or a schoolmaster. Okay, so it was sort of to take people in sort of a theological infancy and to train them up so that they become theological, theologically more mature. Okay, so the law was a tutor. That's what he says in Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. And that word is, in the Greek, it's pedagogues, or we get the word pedagogue or pedagogy. It's a, a method of teaching children that comes into the English. But the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, when, of course, when Christ comes, the law is fulfilled. It is no longer necessary. The ceremonial law becomes abrogated. It becomes done. In fact, that's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews, is you have a, 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 number, a group of Jewish Christians, believe, you know, supposedly, that are under persecution, and they want to turn back to the old way of, of worshiping through the old covenant. And the author of Hebrews make, goes to great pains to say, you cannot go back. You can, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you think of those jetways when you're in the airport and you go down the jetway to, to board the plane. Once the plane is left, you, you can't use the jetway anymore. And the jetway is sort of like the old covenant. So the, the jetway leads you to the plane, which in this analogy is Christ. Now, once the plane is gone, you can't go back to the jetway. The jetway is useless. It's served its purpose, right? So the idea is you can't go back to the old way of things because the substance is here. So they were under the law until the time of Christ, at which point the ceremonial aspects of the law had been fulfilled. The shadow, the Old Testament, the shadow had given way to the substance, which is Christ. So now when we get to Romans 7, there are several key things we need to keep in mind as we look at this very challenging chapter. First, as I said earlier, this section we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 6, is sort of a hinge that connects what he has said in Romans 6 with what he'll say in the rest of Romans 7. And this passage is connected uh, with Romans 6 because in verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So this idea of under law, and then in verse 15, he proposes a question, then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? So this idea here is, Romans 7 here continues that argument. It continues that argument by saying that you are no longer under the law. You're no longer bound to the law because you have died to the law. But it also is connected to the rest of Romans 7 as it discusses the nature of the law to the believer. And we're going to see that as we go in the weeks to come. But the second thing to, we need to understand is this concept of under the law. And in order to properly understand Romans 7 as a whole, we'll discuss this a little bit more when we come to Romans 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 4. But we need to understand this concept of under the law. So now let's look at the passage as we're now here. 
So in verse 1, really I kind of, you can break this passage into three points. I've got sort of the principle stated, the principle illustrated, and the principle applied. So in verse 1, you've got the principle stated. Paul's going to state a principle here in verse 1 where he says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction or dominion over a person as long as he lives? So coming off what Paul has said in verse 14, Paul continues his argument about Christians not being under law, but under grace. Now, one of the many benefits of our justification that we have, one of the many benefits is that Christians are no longer under the law. And one of the primary reasons for that is because being in Christ, Christ has fulfilled the law, right? That's what we believe. He fulfilled the law. And now we are justified. We get that righteousness by grace through faith. So in a sense, we have fulfilled the law, not by our own works, but by imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Now, by saying we're not under law, Paul is not saying we are free to sin. That was his whole argument at the second half of chapter six, that you are, you know, freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. We looked at that in some detail. So justification is being set free from the sin, free from the law, and serving God now as slaves of righteousness. So you're, you're a slave either to sin or to righteousness. In other words, now we have the freedom to obey. Now, if you remember again, the slave of sin, we said that the slave of sin is free in regards to righteousness. He cannot serve and be righteous to God. But being a slave to righteousness means you now have the ability, the freedom to obey God. Now here in Romans 7, 1, Paul is taking this concept. He's tackling this concept of not under the law from a different angle. So he's coming at it from a different angle than he did at the end of chapter 6. And he begins by saying he uses the same phraseology that he uses in chapter 6, verse 3, when he says, do you not know? He says that in verse 3. And when he says, do you not know? He's basically saying, this is something you actually already know. And the word there, do you not know, literally is to be ignorant. So he's like, are you ignorant? <laughs> but, he's, you know, but he's saying it in a way, it's like, no, I know you're not ignorant because what I'm about to say is common knowledge. So do you not know is the same thing as saying, I know you know this to be true. And what Paul's about to say, it's, it's going to be obvious. Now, before we get to that, there's this little phrase that he's got in there, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. There's a little bit of debate on this. Now, what does the law mean here? I think it means the Mosaic law. And those who know the law, are these Jews or Jewish Christians? Is he speaking to Jews only? Is he sort of taking it aside to speak to Jews? Yeah. Like I said, there was a lot of debate on this. I think it's not, he's not just speaking to Jews or Jewish Christians. Let me just summarize it. And it could be that all Christians would have some understanding of the Mosaic law seeing that Christianity does sort of come out of Judaism in a sense. So there would even the, the Gentile Christians would have some sense of the Mosaic Law because most of the early, earliest Christians were Jewish and they would know that. And most Christian or Gentile converts would have at least been made somewhat familiar with that. Now back to the point. The point of what Paul is going to say here is this principle that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, should understand. And basically the principle is this. The law has jurisdiction 
over a person as long as he is alive. That, I mean, that sounds pretty basic, sounds pretty simple, right? That's why he says, do you not know this? So it might seem obvious at first glance, but this simple observation will play a critical role in the point Paul will make later. But the law can only control the living. I mean, how much control does our law have over the residents buried in the Sutton Cemetery? Right, zero. Right, there are no lawbreakers there, and there's no one. You know, the police have no jurisdiction over the bodies in the Sutton Cemetery. And this word jurisdiction or binding or dominion, we've seen this word before. Uh, it's it's the word curio curioou, or it basically it just means to have power over or to rule over or to lord it over. Like I said, we saw this back in Romans six, verse nine and fourteen knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. That's that word. So death is not the Lord over Christ because Christ has been raised from the dead and he has conquered death. And again in verse 14, sin shall not be the Lord over you or the master over you. It should not lord it over you because you have died to sin. You're no longer under law but under grace. So that word is to, just basically has dominion over somebody. And the law can only have authority over you as long as you're living. Once you've died, you're free from the law's dominion over you. It's just, that's, that's the principle. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty cut and dried. Now, Paul is going to illustrate this as we go now to the principle illustrated in verses 2 and 3. He illustrates this with the analogy of marriage. So, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, it's a pretty simple illustration, and I think it illustrates the point quite nicely. So just as a person is under the dominion of the law as long as they're alive, so too a woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. So just as a person is under the dominion of the law as long as they're alive, so too a woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. Now, again, this might seem obvious, so much so that it need not be stated, but there was a problem with this. In fact, in the city of Corinth, there were issues surrounding marriage, uh, in which, particularly in marriages in which one partner in the marriage converted to Christianity, but the other didn't. In those cases in Corinth, what they were doing is, because they were under the impression that you should not associate with unbelievers at all, if one partner in the marriage converted to Christ, they were actually leaving the unbelieving spouse or divorcing the unbelieving spouse. And Paul had to write to them to tell them, look, if the unbelieving spouse is still willing to stay married to you after you come to Christ, then you are to stay with that person. So he wrote an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 7 is it is an entire chapter devoted to questions about marriage that were going on in the Corinthian church. And what he states there is a real as a principle in a real life case, he also uses as an illustration here in Romans chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians 7:39, he writes to the church there, a wife is bound as long as uh, as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. So there he's telling those Christian spouses, as long as your unbelieving spouse is alive, you are bound to that person because you are married to them, even if they are an unbeliever. 
You have to stay with them as long as they're willing to stay with you. As long as they can put up with you, you have to stay with them. Now, when that person dies, now you're free to marry. But now you should marry in the Lord. But the point is marriage is a one flesh union that is ordained by God. And as Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And as many of us probably said in our wedding vows, till death do us part, right? So the idea is marriage is a binding covenant. So then Paul goes on to say, but if her husband dies, this is back to Romans 7, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Again, this would be another obvious statement. A woman is legally married until her husband dead, and then she becomes a widow. And when this happens, then she is released from her vows. Her vows are no longer applicable to a spouse that is dead. Now, Paul continues the analogy in verse 3, and he says, If while her husband is alive, she is joined to another, she is, then she has violated the law concerning marriage and has become an adulteress. Again, I'm not saying anything earth-shattering here. This is all pretty basic. And the whole point of this analogy is to illustrate the principle stated in verse 1. So just as a woman is free to marry another man if her husband is dead, so too the law only has jurisdiction over a person who is alive. A dead man is freed from the law. That's the point. So now we see the principle illustrated, or the principle stated, illustrated, and now it's going to be applied in verses 4 through 6. And here's the payoff of everything Paul's been saying so far in this chapter. We see it in verse 4, where he says, Therefore, okay, again, whenever you see the therefore, that's, that's an indicator. I'm concluding an argument, okay? This is, here's the payoff, okay? You couldn't, if you had neon signs and everything point, this would be, this is, when you see the therefore, that's when you should, okay, this is what Paul really means to get at. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that, that's a purpose, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, another purpose, that we might bear fruit to, uh, for God. So you've got the conclusion and you've got two purposes for what he is concluding here. Now, first, let's look at this phrase, through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. This is the, the means by which we have died to the law. Okay? You have, you have died, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So through the means of the body of Christ. In other words, Christ was born and he died under the law. Okay? Galatians 3 says that he was born of a woman born under the law. And he died under the law. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has fulfilled the law and its demands for us. And then by our union with Christ, we receive all of these blessed benefits through faith. So the, 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 the death he died to sin, the death he died of the law, the fulfillment of the law that he made, we get all of that. That is ours. As if we had done it ourselves through our union with Christ, which we receive by faith. But second, his death on the cross and our union with him, uh, through that, we were made to die to the law. So that's the second thing we're going to look at, made to die to the law. So Paul has already told us that we have died to sin so that we ought not live in sin any longer. That's Romans 6, 2. And then furthermore, Paul will say later in Romans 8, verse 2, 
that we were set free from the law of sin and death. But there's a little more to this made dead to the law. And the focal point of Paul's argument here in Romans regarding the law is its inability to save. Okay, so when you see Paul kind of talking negatively about the law in Romans, at least in Romans, the the negativity toward the law is focused on its inability to save its inability to lead us to the life we need to live. The law condemns, the law convicts, the law points out our sin, but the law cannot save. It is impotent in this matter. I mean, that's what we looked at in Romans 2, Romans 3. The law cannot save. The law can only point out what sin is. Giving the law does not somehow make you saved. That was one of the Jewish problems was They thought because they were circumcised and they thought because they had the law that that was it. They were in. They didn't need to do anything else about that. So the idea of dying to the law is basically, and this is important, dying to the law as a power of the old age to which the person apart from Christ is bound. So the law, in a sense, is a artifact, if you will, of the old age, the old covenant, the old way of doing things. And a person apart from Christ is bound under that law. Okay? Apart from Christ, you are bound under that law because apart from Christ, the law still has authority and jurisdiction over you. But now Christ has come, and through his body, through his death, he died to the law, he died under the law, and now that dominion has been uh, broken over our lives. That dominion has been broken and we are now dead to that. We're dead to the law as a power of the old age, the old way of doing things to which the person apart from Christ was at one point bound. We mentioned this earlier. The law again is a tutor. It was a teacher who held sway over the people of God until the arrival of Christ. It is in this sense that we have died to the law. Now that Christ is here, you don't need the tutor anymore. You don't need the pedagogue. You don't need the, the person that brings you along. You have matured. You have graduated, in a sense. We've graduated in Christ. So the law is no longer a binding authority in the life of the believer. And the purpose of all this, there's two purposes. The first purpose of all this is we have died to the law so we could be joined to another. Okay? And here's where the marriage analogy takes on a bit of a deeper meaning uh, in this passage. We died to the law so we be conjoined, so we could be betrothed to another, namely Christ, him who is, as it says here, uh, him to, we could be joined to him who was raised from the dead. So we died to the law so we could be united to Christ, so we could join to Christ. And then a further purpose here is stated in that we were dead so that we could be joined to Christ, but also we were dead so we could be bear fruit to God. So we were joined to Christ so that we could bear fruit to God. Those dual purposes, we pointed that out. So we die to the law. We were made to die to the law through the means of the body of Christ so that we could be joined to Christ and also so that we could bear fruit for God. Now, as always, the purpose here for which God does anything is to reflect 
and display his glory. So the fruit we bear, the, the, the good works that we do are always for the greater purpose to give glory to God. Now, going on to verse five, he's going to do what he's he's done this before and later in chapter six. But in verse five here, he's going to contrast our old way of living with our new way of living. So in verse five, he looks at our former life first. He says, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Then now this phrase for while we were in the flesh points back to a time before we were believers. And that phrase in the flesh isn't speaking of our bodies. Okay, it's not talking about our material existence, our natural life. The, the word for flesh or sarks has a wide range of meaning and it has some deeper theological meanings. And here, the flesh refers to the things of this age, this world, the sinful principle that is alive in us because of the fall. All the things that are opposed to God and opposed to the things of God is represented in the flesh, okay, in this, in this sense. In other words, what is, what is of the flesh is not of the spirit. So those two concepts will be contrasted. We're going to see that in Romans 8 more fully. So when, you, when Paul is, in this sense, using the word flesh, it's, he means it not of the spirit. So the concepts of in the flesh, in the spirit are being set against one another. So in the flesh is existence in the domain of the flesh. It is determined by three other powers of this age, sin, the law, and death. So being in the flesh is being in, under that age, under this power of sin, the law, and death. Now he says, in our time in the flesh was one in which our fallen corrupt natures were aroused by the law. Now we're going to look at a little bit more at this next week. But in other words, the, we said the law cannot lead to righteousness. In fact, the law, all it does is point out sin. But more importantly, the law not only does not stop sin, but it actually can arouse sin in the fallen nature. The, the, the law arouses sin. It provokes the flesh into producing sin. I've used this example many times before. You know, you, you've got the person with a perfectly manicured lawn. He's just mowed it. He's just uh, fertilized it. And he puts a sign, keep off the grass. Now that I see that sign, keep off the grass, it kind of provokes the little kid in me to want to step on the grass. The law provokes sin. If your mom bakes cookies and she says, I'm going to go away for two hours. I got to do some errands. Don't any, don't eat any cookies until I get back. Now, maybe you were playing in your room or playing with friends and you weren't even thinking about cookies. But now mom has said, I have made cookies. Don't eat any until I get back. Now you're thinking cookies sound really good now, right? I think I'm thinking I want some cookies. And now you're thinking that, that, that command has aroused the sin in you. It's like, I think I'm going to try to sneak a cookie. She's not going to know. What, is she going to count the cookies before she goes? That's the idea. The law just arouses sin. It can't stop sin. In fact, it does the exact opposite. It arouses sin. And as such, our sinful passions can only bear fruit for death. It's a similar thought that Paul spoke about in Romans 6. And here he's just reinforcing this thought. So while we're in the flesh, we can only produce the rotting fruit of death. 
And the point being is this. While we were under the law, again, under the law, we could not bear fruit for God. We have to be freed from the law. We have to die to the law in order to bear fruit for God. We can only bear fruit from, uh, for death. So now in verse 6, uh, Paul uses this uh, for when, now, but now. So it's like, you were this, but now you're this. He did this back in, in Romans 6. And in verse 6 of chapter 7, Paul says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Again, back to the marriage analogy, just as the woman is released from the law of marriage by the death of her husband, we have been released from the law. We have been released because we have died to that by which we were bound. We've been released from bondage of the law. We've been released from the regime of the law, the the dominion of the law. Again, we said the Mosaic law is a product of the old covenant, and we've been released uh, from this bondage by dying to it. So just as when Paul says in Romans 6, verses 2 and 4, he says we have died to sin, we have also now died to the law. And with the advent of Christ, with the coming of Christ, the old covenant is set aside. Again, the old covenant, it's not bad, it's just, it's, it's useless now. The old covenant was meant to lead us to Christ, to point us to Christ, to show us how Christ is in the sacrifices, is in the temple, he's in the worship, and now that he's here, we don't need that anymore. It's like training wheels on a bicycle. You need the training wheels because you're going to fall over, but once you've got the balance, you don't go back to the training wheels unless you're like 90 and you can't ride a bike anymore. But the idea is you don't, you don't go back to the training wheels. They're gone. They've served their purpose. The old covenant has served its purpose, including the Mosaic law and the demands. And the life and death of Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant. There's no point going back to something that has fulfilled its purpose. Now, Paul here adds another purpose clause at the end of verse 6. We've been released from the law so that we might serve. Again, we're not released to to live lives however we want. We're released from bondage to sin and the law and death to serve now God and righteousness and, and holiness. So we've been released so we might serve, as Paul says, in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Now, newness of spirit here kind of parallels a little bit what he said in Romans 6, verse 4, with the newness of life. We've died to sin. We were baptized with Christ, and now we've been raised in newness of life. And the newness of life is a life in the spirit. It is a newness of the spirit. And it's something Paul is going to go into much more detail in Romans 8, but I'll give you a little taste of it. You could probably just flip over one page or maybe on the same page. Uh, Romans 8 in verses 1 through 4 where Paul writes, uh, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you've been set free from the old way to the new way. For what the law, 
capital L, Mosaic Law, could not do, is impotent, weak as it was through the flesh. Our, in our flesh, we cannot fulfill the law. God did. So what the law could not do in, our, in the weakness of our flesh, God himself did. And he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, as I said earlier, remember, flesh and spirit are opposed to one another. And you're going to see that much more clearly in Romans 8. So newness of spirit is sort of also the newness of life, life in the spirit. The oldness of the letter essentially refers to the keeping of the Mosaic law, the letter of the law, in a sense. And our service to God is, not by the, is by the working of the Holy Spirit, not by keeping the law. We fulfill the law through the Spirit. We, fu- we fulfill the law by our union with Christ, not by actually trying to do works of the law. Again, remember, way back in Romans 2, Romans 3, works of the law cannot save you. And this idea of newness of the Spirit, oldness of the letter is something... We saw earlier back in Romans chapter 2 when Paul is talking about who is the true Jew. And he says at the end of Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So all of these ceremonies, the, you know, your outward obedience to the law, your outward observance of the ceremonies, the circumcision, all this stuff, that's not what makes you a Jew. But a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and the circumcision that is, uh, which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Again, the spirit of newness, not oldness of the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Well, that's it for today. In next week, on the 20th, we'll continue Romans 7 as we consider verses 7 through 13 as we look more deeply into this idea of freedom from the law.